You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Kirsten Menger Anderson has been shortlisted for the Richard Yates Award, the Glimmer Train Short Story Award for New Writers, the Iowa Review Story Contest, and the Andre Dubose Award. Her first book is Dr. Olaf von Schuler's Brain. Thank you for joining me, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. I also really loved Hysteria because I, I think this is one of the uh, stories that's, that, that, you know, you talk about women, women's history. It really interests me. This, what's interesting about this story to me is... Though, I guess the way that we have what I would call umbrellas of understanding, uh, words, and the power of metaphor in medicine, when you just think of a word, hysteria, it just, it explains everything. <laughs> Could you talk about how hysteria explains everything, particularly with respect to women? And, and because at that time, I don't think men really knew that much about women. It was, I mean, we know a lot more today. We Men didn't know much then, and so they had to make it up, and they were scared. Yeah, I mean, hysteria, it, it was a, you don't find hysterical men. It was a condition women had, and it was blamed on a wandering uterus, um, a uterus that should be weighed down with child often. So I, I think that you could say it was a way of um, controlling women. Um, certainly in the context of the story where the daughters wish to do what she wants to do and her fight against her parents who are preventing her from doing it, uh, the diagnosis drops her, imprisons her, really, in um, the home and in the role they wish her to, to fill. Now, and this story also brings to mind another thing that, that comes throughout this novel are... This one of the things that's at the heart of this novel are the relationships within families. We you have a, a mother son relationship in Dr. Olaf von Schuler. You have siblings and siblings. You have father daughter relationship here, mother daughter relationship here. Could you talk about the way you worked out the the kinetics of family relationships? And did you deliberately do different permutations for each story as of families? Well, I mean, I think just. By the nature of a family, they're all, you know, no families are the same. They're different, different members of each family. I don't, I don't think I deliberately thought, oh, I'm going to do this dynamic here, but it was just a different element to think about or work with. It just kind of naturally fell out of, of working on, a, on the stories together that, of course, they would have different relationships. I mean, another thing I did is, you know, each generation has a doctor, but the the doctor's not always the focal character of the story. So, you know, you see different, you see the, you see the medical idea through different lenses or different people, either the patient or sometimes the doctor. Or, so I just, you know, just sort of naturally changed these things as I was, as I was working. Now, what exactly is the baquette? Okay. Tell me how to say it. Tell me what it is. Because I really love that story. It's a very interesting story. Anything that has to do with mesmer is really gets my interest right away. 
Um, I've always called it the baquette. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. I do know that it was an actual device. Mm-hmm. Um, as described pretty much in the story, a big vat with water and bottles and iron filings and handles around the side, and people would hold on to those, and it would help align their 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 um, fluids, and um, they would they would feel cured. So. Um, the story is named for the device, and yes, mesmerism was the the inspiration for that tale. Now, uh, again, this speaks to the the power of metaphor in medicine because these ideas of you know our bodily fluids it seems really powerful to even now you seem to think that it make kind of makes sense in a way even though we know it doesn't, and, and I'm wondering as you started as you were going through. Um, these uh, eras of medicine, these various like crazy and scary and, and entertaining beliefs, because <laughs> that's one of the things this book is, is it really entertains us with our own beliefs. Um, did you, uh, were there <clears throat> times when you would think, well, gosh, maybe, maybe there's something to that? <laughs> you know, it's funny that you bring that up with the baquette, because I actually... I, I like that story, and I actually think that the medicine, that's one of the few stories where the medicine is, is pretty positive. I think, you know, it's it's a little bit magical. Um, certainly, you know, I mean, yes, you could say the fool is a charlatan. The fool is the practitioner of via Mesmer's techniques. But I feel like the there was no or very little negative fallout from that. So in, in that one case, it's not say that I subscribed to that belief, but I was charmed by it. And I was sure I like how it played out in the tale, how it ended up working out. I, I like that story. And I like the fool. He's one of the characters. I mean, I don't have a favorite character in the story, but I always think of him as a little bit magical. In, in Neurasthenia, you talk about something that I think is really interesting because, I, I again, this... The, one of the things about these beliefs is they're very powerful, and even though they're, I think, scientifically and socially discredited, many of these beliefs, I think they still really run through our society today. And in neurasthenia, um, at one point, uh, somebody talks about, you know, perceptions of the the poor, uh, uh, poor, you know, uh, being poor as a condition of mental illness. And, you know, what but disease could explain the conditions of the destitute chose for themselves? I mean, that's what they say about homeless people. I mean, now. So it, it's kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, I was um, hoping to show with that line how out of touch the, the doctor was with reality. But I, I think, yes, it's that's something that um, still is the case. Well, um, tell us a little bit uh, about um, what uh, neurasthenia is. And um, I, I love this. <laughs> this story is, is very funny. Uh, tell us what, what the main character, Edwin, decides to do in, in order to achieve happiness. <laughs> well, uh, neurasthenia is a a disease that was very common in its time. It's um, Victorian times, pretty much. It was 
particularly popular in the United States at that time. And it was believed to be related to urbanization. Um, and it was a disease that affected both men and women. Symptoms were fatigue, impotence, headache. There are several other that aren't jumping to my mind right now, but the most common cure for the time was, was bed rest. And in the story, the, the doctor who's part of the part of the family decides to use an experimental treatment, which was to electrocute these patients with his magneto um, with hopes that he could restore them and, and cure them and um, make them respectable, responsible, successful citizens. Because, as, as you mentioned, um, poor people were clearly sick because why else would they be poor? He attempts to cure Edwin, who's a Macy's clerk. And you get a little view into Macy's and uh, some of those details are, you know, I think there's it's the Ladies Avenue Mile. or I mean, these were details that I'd read about New York at the time, so they're, they're pulled from history. Now, and this is another character, not just America, but New York as well. And it's a really interesting shifting landscape. And as time as time goes, that in the book, the the rate of uh, change just really accelerates. Um, now, you spent some time in New York. I lived in New York after college for about three years, and I go back and to visit pretty much every year, every two years. I really like the city a lot. I think it's a fantastic city. Um, did, did you visit uh, uh, the places that you wrote about once you made the decision to set the stories there? Yeah, most of them. Most of them. I haven't. I have not been to all. Um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to retrace. I went. Actually, I was back and I I wanted to do a map and photograph each of the locations and put it up on my website. And I was traveling with my daughter who was not yet two and she got sick so I didn't actually have a chance to to put together that project that I wanted to do I hope to do it maybe one uh, trip in the future because I think it'd be a really neat map or just you know just then and now and I know um, there's a book I loved um, Shadow of the Wind and I was reading it when I was living in Barcelona, and I actually went to the house that's described in the story. I went to the street, and I walked up and down it, and I was looking for that house. And I really, I thought the address would be there, and I, I couldn't actually find that address. I, maybe I just didn't see it, or I, I suspect more likely it isn't actually there. But I love to go to the places that are described in in books, and I would I would love to do that for my own book. Now, in uh, A Spoonful uh, Makes You Fertile, this is the delightful era of radium treatment, which is, I think, uh, again, one of these things that, and this brings another point that I think is interesting, a theme through this book. Um, a lot of the stuff that surrounds medicine that is about medicine and just, you know, biology is stuff we can't see. It's invisible. So there's this a tendency to, I think, attribute a lot more because you can't to, – to assume that because you can't see electricity and it can do so much that there's all sorts of things happening around us that we can't see and are really – might be really good for us like radium. 
Could you talk about the history of radium? Did you research this? And... Yeah, I read about that in a book called, um, I think it's called Quack. And it was written by a man who had a museum dedicated to some of these some of these techniques. So the museum I heard is closed. Um, I believe it was in Minneapolis, and I asked my cousin when they said it was closed. I don't, I don't know anything more than that. But I, I enjoyed his book very much, and it had a whole chapter dedicated to radium cures and the different the different products listed in the story are, you know, real devices that were sold at the time. A, a lot of them did not actually do anything. They they weren't regulated, and so. You know, basically, they were just crocks that you put water in and took out of. So the ones that actually did have um, radium could cause damage. There there was a story of a man who drank a tremendous amount of this radium water, and after a year or so, his teeth started falling out, and, you know, he, he, he died. And that was basically very close to the end of the radium era. Um, but that's that's where I learned about that. Now, um, uh, I, I also really like the shifting palette of uh, perspectives in, in terms of the way some of the stories are in first person and third person. You just There's really a lot of wonderful variety in this book. It's an interesting uh, project because for how coherent it seems, I, I mean, like as I say, I, I called it a novel. Many people call it a novel. I can understand your perception of it as a linked short stories. Um, for how strongly coherent it seems, you do provide a lot of variety, and I love the you know the first person narrator of Salkins and, and, and Sabin. Could, could you talk a little bit about uh, you know the polio times or something we don't remember, but that's a scary era when you when you talk about it in the book, it's positively frightening. Oh, yeah, it is frightening, um, and I'm. I'm glad I never had polio, but yeah, there, you know, there are accounts of children taken from their families and put in the iron lungs. A big, I mean, to me, just looking at pictures, they look like giant coffins, <laughs> and you know, you, you, you could only talk to your parents through the door, and um, it left a lot of people crippled, you know, who couldn't walk or couldn't walk well. It was a very frightening, right? It is a very frightening disease. Well, also, I mean, this vision of closing movie theaters and, and you know, the, the public places, I mean, that's something that, you know, could, could happen now, and it's pretty scary. Could you talk just a little bit about um, this kind of vision? And also what's nice is, too, is you talk, again, the, the freer social conditions for women. Women are kind of like the, 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 you can see the nation's kind of like kind of coming unglued, and, and polio <laughs> is part of that. I don't know that I ever thought of polio as part of the ungluing of the social <laughs> structure, but I mean, I I guess when I was writing the story, I wanted I wanted to look at the different ideas for combating the disease or preventing the disease and the different approaches. Um, you know, there were two two different approaches with the vaccine and different relationships among the characters. And I was thinking about the two together as I was writing the story. So really the spark for that for me was looking at what was 
or questioning what was true or what was best. Mm-hmm. You know, we, there's a whole idea throughout that story about the debates and mm-hmm. and throughout it, this is a very childish idea, like which is right, which is right, which is true. And, you know, and, and the questions are, you know, do you save the soldier or the general first? Or I mean, they're questions that aren't right or wrong or true or false. And um, I liked looking at that idea along with this woman who's in a relationship that may not seem the best, but are her other relationships better? And just, you know, is this right? Is this wrong? No, you can't really, you can't really say, but it's, it's an open debate. So that's where I, I got, that's where that story came from, or that was sort of the genesis of that story. Well, could you talk about the different kinds of uh, vaccinations of Salk and, and, and Sabin yeah, models? One involves uh, injecting a dead virus, and that's the Salk. And one involves um, taking a, li- a very mild but live um, virus, and that's the Sabin. And um, there are benefits of benefits to both. I think the Sabin one people like because you just had to take it once and it was an oral. And we've gone just, I mean, I think we used the Salk and then we used the Sabin. And I forget. I forget exactly. But we've flipped in which one is the most common. And in different parts of the world, different ones are taken. So it's it's not a right or wrong. I mean, there are different approaches and different risks and different benefits of each. Now, uh, the story of her breasts is another um, a lovely social episode <laughs> in, Amer- <laughs> in America. And, and um, you use as the backdrop of this the, the Attica riots. And I thought that was a really fascinating choice in the way that, that it plays out against the background. Could you talk about the combination of those two themes? Yeah, I think that's that's yet another story where I chose a social thing mm-hmm. along with the medical one to to go back and forth. I was particularly interested in that one with the class action suit because with Attica there was a class action and it took you know it was in the courts of the for years and years and years with no settlement and then in in the um, in the silicon breast thing when there was a class action suit by women who'd had the implants that you know how long is this one going to take just just looking at that element and it interested me um, looking at people who weren't um, treated properly. I mean, I don't, I feel, you know, I mean, silicon implants are, are legal again. I mean, they're approved since I think 2006. Mm-hmm. But I do feel anger, I think, that they were used before those studies were performed and used so widely, and it just makes me feel... Um, that women weren't fully taken seriously as people or there's something kind of unsettling about that, that so many people had this cosmetic procedure and then questioned it or worried about it, rightly or wrongly. I tried not to, uh, in all the stories actually, I tried not to come down on either side. I wanted to leave things open so people could come to their own conclusions. But I do feel, as myself, just a person talking now, not, not, a sto- not the story, but I, I do feel, uh, I think the reason I was drawn to that is I was just stunned by 
by that whole um, stretch of time. Well, it's so interesting because, I mean, when you, now that you, you know, the way you put it this way, I mean, and again, one of the powers of this book is that it allows us to telescope things. And the difference between silicon implants and hysteria, uh, you know, 150 years before and the perceptions of women between those two things, it's not that different. I mean, it's still, as one doctor says, terms a woman at one point, a new species. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mistress Gradiva. Yeah, although I really wanted to leave it on a more positive note by ending with the woman doctor, mm -hmm. um, which was very important. I, I wrote several endings to the book and different stories, but the, that element of having a, a female physician who was part of the family was, was really important to me. Now, and that's a really interesting, that's a fascinating uh, story as well, uh, because it begins with the, a, a doctor who's sick. Mm -hmm. A plastic surgeon. <laughs> Could you talk about, um, and this is, I guess, our own, you know, our generation's uh, something we don't know about, which is Alzheimer's, and, it, and it's a devastating disease. I mean, have you have you had any personal experience with it, or do you know anybody who has had any personal experience with it? Just one small clarification: the the disease that's spoken about is Creutzfeldt-Jakob. Oh, Creutzfeldt. Yes, I um, So, but it's not um, the thing that really interested me about that disease is you don't really diagnose it to the person's dead because it's you can't cure it, mm -hmm. um, and there's really no point in confirming that that's what it is. It's more of a disease. So you, we don't actually know for sure what it is that the doctor has, I mm -hmm. guess, is, is my is my clarification, that mm -hmm. it's suspected that it's this disease, but, but you don't know exactly what it is. But it's a very frightening disease. The idea of losing your memory and losing your, your facilities is, I, I think, terrifying. Yes. Um, <laughs> my, so, sorry, so, my mistake. Now, uh, well, as it happens, I mean, it's they're fairly the, the effects are are not dissimilar in in, in many ways. Um, now, this is also a disease that you know is well known for you know the the uh, uh, mad what we call mad cow disease as well. So it, it's a it's a question as to whether or not somewhere down the line, um, as as you mentioned, you know, two generations from now, we might have an entire population that has. Creutzfeldt Jakob disease, and, and was that? Were there any? Did you have any visions of that? <laughs> no, no, I didn't have visions of that. That would be very frightening, indeed. Um, and again, here you end on a, on a, a father daughter relationship, uh, and it, there's a nice echo in this in this story of, of the at the end of the first story too. You know that you know go go and save us. You know there. Could you talk a little bit about creating that echo in that time back to the to the very very beginning from a time when we think we know everything, or we or at least we think we know what we know? Uh huh. Oh yeah. No, thank you for for making that point um, because it was something I was thinking about. I think in the first story, the idea of medicine saving people that the the um, knowledge the doctor was hoping to have he was having a hard time getting it because of the church which was saving people the idea of madness for example in that time was 
thought to be that you're that you were you're demons, you know, and you needed to be you needed to turn to God to cure you. So at the end, the idea that a doctor could go out and save you was a perhaps subtle, perhaps not, but a a transition that I I wanted to end on. I wanted just to show how much faith we place in doctors, even despite some of the missteps of our past. So I I thought it was a kind of a a positive note to end on. That we still that we believe that we can that we can cure, that we can find cures, that we can combat illness and it, nothing's perfect, but we're still trying and we're still learning. But it, it, well, it, it's I think more positive than that. In that, it's okay to look for a cure. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. That, that's a that's indeed. a big step forward yeah. from you know hope it's God's will that you die. There's there's a bed go lay down. <laughs> now, um, you have have other stories that are, I guess fit into this cycle. Um, that aren't in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I pulled them out. I had one I wrote on um, the Spanish flu. Oh, it's a big epidemic. Right. And... I was wondering what that was. Because <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I was looking at 1910 and 1931, and I was wondering where the, where the Spanish flu was. Were you really? Yeah. That's so funny. I pulled it out. I pulled it out. Um, I had one on uh, gene therapy. One of the endings ended in the future. Um, I pulled that one out. That was a good move, I think. Yeah, there are several others that, that didn't make it into the collection. Sometimes, some of them... Um, this I just didn't think the stories were as good as the ones that are in it, and some of them just didn't really feel to feel like they fit. Um, so now, um, could you talk about the the process that you wrote all these stories and you didn't write them in the order we we read them in? Yeah, no. Uh, could you talk about the process of have, when you had all the stories, kind of uh, fitting them together and putting the book in, and you know. You're a short story writer. Was it easy for you to go out and get an agent? Did you have an agent at that time? Oh no, it it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, I in some ways my job of putting them together was easy because they go in chronological order. So I just put them from earliest to latest. It wasn't like some some collections. I I don't know how people decide which piece to put first or last. I mean, mine I had a very clear pattern to follow when mm-hmm. I was when I was assembling it. In terms of finding an agent, uh, it took me quite a while. I, uh, I, the, it went out. The collection went out under a different title with a different configurations of stories, and some of the stories changed. I was probably searching for an agent for about a year, um, and I just kept. I, I, you know, and the thing is, I'd also looked for agents for other books I'd written. I, I had a. I got an, a master's in English and creative writing from San Francisco State University, and I had a, you know, my thesis was a novel, and I tried to find someone to represent that, and no one did. And I wrote another collection of stories, and I tried to find someone to represent that, and no one did. And then I wrote this collection of stories, and um, the thing that separated, I think, this from some of the previous ones is that I just, I didn't stop. I just kept revising it, and sending it out to a new group of people and not the collection I mean just a query letter are you interested mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, finally uh, there were two people who were interested in representing it so I 
I took it very seriously. I flew out to the East Coast and met with them both. And I just, I really, really had a great meeting with uh, Eve Bridberg, who's my agent. I think she's fantastic. And I was actually her first client. I was the first person to sign up with her. But I knew she was just starting out as an agent. I just knew she was great. And I knew she could, if, if, if my book could be placed, she was, she'd be able to do it. And she did. Now, um, well, this is very interesting. First book. So it was a first book for both you and your agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she she sent it out to, I'm trying to remember now, probably maybe 10 or 12 different publishers. And she explained to me that we'd do it in rounds. And this is the first round, and then there'd be another round. And unfortunately, because I was very distracted when I knew it was out and people were reading it I, I I was very very glad that someone was interested Algonquin was interested in the first round so it didn't take all that long once it was finally ready to go out I did um, I did work with my agent on the manuscript before it went out so I, I did work several rounds of, of revision with her um, before she sent it out so that was more process and then um, with the editors at Algonquin went through several edits there as well so now, how long did it take from the time you wrote Reading Grandpa's Head, set pen to paper, to the time you held this book in your hand for the first time? I, I believe that I started Reading Grandpa's Head in 2001, possibly 2002. So six, seven years, probably all told. That's um, a lot of persistence. How how did you maintain that 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 drive for six seven years for for one book? Or did you you mentioned other books? Did, did you kind of like go back and forth? And... <laughs> you know, I mean, I um, I think there was something about this book that I wouldn't let go of it. I just kept working on it and working on it and, and working on it until until I got to hold it in my hands, which, you know, wasn't true for some of the others. I may possibly go back to some of the others. I don't think so. I'm working on a new book now. It, you know, it's new material rather than something that I wrote before I wrote this because I do think that just the process of writing over and over, you know, it makes me a better writer, at least I hope. You know, so I, I, my hope is that the pages I'm working on now are... Um, going to be good ones we'll, we'll see but I'm having fun doing 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 it I mean I enjoy the writing I found I found rejection because I I, I think it's I, as a writer I, I wanted to have my work published I wanted people to read it so it was disheartening sending things out and not finding someone who wanted to represent it or not finding or getting you know the collection of form rejections from magazines or things like that it, it can be disheartening but I mean I never stopped writing I hope I just worked on this or if this was slow I was in a place where I was thinking you know I was in a drawer and I was waiting for some time to pass to edit it I, I worked on a, a, another manuscript so well tell us about your, your new book what are you working on now um I'm working on what I, I would call a more traditional novel it's follows one character start to finish a much shorter time frame about three weeks and it's set in Ecuador um, it also deals it's also in the science world it's with ecology um, so 
characters are studying butterflies in the rainforest, sort of remote rainforest in Ecuador. The, the new species that you were told never existed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm still dealing with my fifth grade demons. Now, um, uh, could you talk about your, uh, your, your working on a, a new book and your, your touring for this book? Could you talk about what you have to do to when they release this book? I mean, books used to get, I think, uh, a certain amount more uh, push from a publisher. Could you talk about what they expect you to do in, in terms of, of getting people to read this book? Um, well, I think a common expectation is to have a website um, to promote yourself as much as you can to your friends, your family. Um, I know that if I have an opportunity to write a piece for a blog, I do it. You know, I've done a number of small things like that. Um, I I have to say that I think Algonquin has done a fantastic job of spreading the word about the book. I think they're I think they're great. I know I've I've been told a lot of people are are upset they don't think the publisher does enough for their book, but I I just feel grateful. I think they've they've done a wonderful job. Well, they they printed a beautiful book and it got to me. <laughs> Mission accomplished, as far as I'm concerned. I've been speaking with Kirsten Menger Anderson. Her first book is Doctor Olaf von Schuler's Brain, and we've been picking. Kirsten Mengern Anderson's brain. Thank you for joining me, Kirsten. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.